You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey there, it's Max, one of your uh, co-hosts, with some information about how the show is possible today. Uh, it is thanks to the generous support of Squarespace. Whether you need a portfolio to showcase your work, a store to sell your products and services, or a blog to share your ideas, Squarespace gives you everything you need to make your next move and turn that vision of yours into a reality. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter the offer code LONGFORM. You'll get 10% off your first purchase. Thanks to Squarespace for sponsoring the show. Thanks also to Kindle for sponsoring the show. Great spellers come from great readers, and that's why Kindle is the proud presenting sponsor of the 2017 Scripps National Spelling Bee. A single-purpose Kindle e-reader holds thousands of books, ensuring young readers always have a book with them. To learn more about the ways that Kindle inspires a child's emerging love of reading, visit Amazon.com slash Kindle for Kids. That's Amazon.com slash Kindle for Kids. And finally, thanks to Fan Club, the new podcast from V by Viacom. It's hosted by Ross Martin, and it is all about the future of fandom. Fan Club is about why we love what we love. Guests include Charlemagne the God, Tom Colicchio, and many more. You can subscribe to Fan Club now at vbyviacom.com slash fan club or wherever you are listening to this show, which starts right now. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer here with Evan Ratliff, Max Linsky. Hey, you guys. Hey. Hey, who's on the show? Uh, very exciting show. Um, I love I love to have the documentary filmmakers on this show because you can plow through someone's archive in like one night on your couch. Uh, this Which, would, to be fair, is also how you spend most nights well, on your couch. That's what I was going to be doing anyway. <laughs> and so if I can get my prep work done for the show. Um, and I did um, binge out on um, the guest this week is Erin Lee Carr. She's a documentary filmmaker. She has a new film called Mommy Dead and Dearest out. Um, she previously made a documentary for HBO. Both of the films are for HBO about um, the cannibal cop. Uh, she She covers like – we've talked about the like – sex murder internet complex on the show before she's she's pretty deep in that vortex um and the movie is really fascinating um it's about this woman 
who raised her daughter to believe that she couldn't walk and was seriously ill. And uh, the daughter ended up murdering the mother with someone she met on the internet. Uh, actually, Michelle Dean, it's the- Yeah, the, the Michelle Dean the BuzzFeed same, yeah, story. Michelle, Michelle Dean wrote a book for BuzzFeed. She's in the documentary too. Speaking of the sex murder industrial she's, complex. She's also in that triangle. Yeah, well, that was also like one of the most popular stories of the year. On exactly, Longford. we yeah. talked about that. Um, so if you're interested in- making a documentary for the first time and going from zero to doing that or uh, covering the sex murder internet industrial complex. Uh, a lot of good stuff in this interview. I'm excited for this one. Uh, Aaron, if you wanted to cover a comp, I'm not as good at this as you are. Just, just don't, just don't even try. <laughs> if you'd like to work with MailChimp on an email newsletter, do it. We support that. Uh, no, let's not. Let's take that from the start again. Oh, we are definitely not editing out you fucking up that segment. I've been talking <laughs> that game. <laughs> Run your game, man. If you're looking to show your friends how it goes, settle scores, there's no better way to do it than with an email newsletter. Uh, MailChimp makes the best ones, the easiest to use ones, and they're the sponsor of this show. Thank you, MailChimp. And now here's Aaron with Aaron Lee Carr. Welcome, Aaron Lee Carr. Thank you. You have a new documentary out pretty recently. How many years of your life is this? It was a year and a half of my life, which to most people seems like not a long amount of time. But yeah. for a person who's coming from a web background, it's it's horrifying. Um. <laughs> and okay, so you've done now two documentaries for HBO. Are you like on staff at HBO doing this stuff? Freelance bird. Okay, so you had to like pitch him and get yes. him accepted. <laughs> There's no paycheck if they don't like your ideas. Right. Let's rewind back from there. Um, what was the first job you got along the road that would eventually lead uh, you to making documentaries at HBO? I mean, I would really say it was Vice. Uh, I worked at Vice as, first as a paid intern, which they didn't really do back then. They made an exception for the me. The elusive paid internship. The elusive paid internship. Um, I uh, was in London. I couldn't get a visa. There was a lot of confusion about what I was doing for the company. I think I was there about six or seven months. And I just moved back to the U.S. and to New York. And my dad and I were close, but he said, you have two weeks to find a place to live. You're not going to live at home. So I... Two weeks is pretty pretty short. It's hardball. It yeah. is so hardball. <laughs> yeah. Story of my life. Hardball. These really hardball, amazing people uh, pushing me. And, you know, I, I worked as a PA on the set of Girls, which was wonderful. But being a PA was just like, you know, you just you're just trying to not be in the way. It's such a physically uncomfortable sort of space to be in. And so when Vice, they said they felt bad about what had happened, they offered me to be an associate producer at Vice in New York. And I, I took the job. So when you started out, were you did you have a conscious desire to do video documentary stuff or were you kind of just taking whatever came? very conscious decision yeah. to do documentary. I saw Capturing the Freedmans when I was in high school, Andrew Jarecki's film about a Long Island family that was embroiled in a sex abuse scandal. I could not stop thinking about it. It kept me awake at night. And I just thought that 
I thought it was incredible. It's an incredible job to have. And I saw that Vice was doing, you know, content that mattered. And at the time, they were kind of like the new kids on the block. They had been there for many, many years, um, but they were up and coming. And I, I really wanted to be a part of it. And also documentary film, and I had this really conscious sort of thought process is where women had power, where women could be directors and producers. In narrative, it is very possible for women to be yeah. directors, but you're the exception, not the rule. And with doc, that's not the same. The people I know who've ended up making documentaries in previous generations, it's a lot of people who like went to film school and were going to make like Hollywood blockbusters and actually only like six people a year make a Hollywood blockbuster. And it's mostly and the zero same of them are women and zero of them are women. It's like it's not a huge leap to end up in, in documentary film. But now with the Internet being a primary employer, you also see people jumping from more journalistic backgrounds where they might not have ever picked up a camera. Like what's typical among people who are like making a first documentary right now? You know, I didn't go to film school. That's not I think it would have helped me. I think (laughs) I think it's not great to sort of like just fumble along as you're trying to figure it out, which I, I felt like I did at the the early point in my career, uh, I don't know what is typical. I think it's love of the craft. It's being totally in love with documentary films and knowing about it. But also it's really about storytelling. Is there a story in the world that you want to spend years yeah. of your life doing? When you say that you're starting, like maybe film school would have been helpful on certain levels, is the hardest part of the learning curve technical or that storytelling basic journalism like how do I tell a story to a person part what's like the hardest when you're starting from nothing that's a good question I think it's connections you know as a young person you know when you get into a room and you say I think I have a story to tell almost all eyes are going to glaze over yeah and so you need to be in the exact right room that some people may hear you I don't have a technical skill set. I work with people who are incredibly talented, our editor Andrew and our cinematographer Brian. I feel like I've always had sort of the story down that's Mm. not been really difficult for me. So the difficult thing I think for me has always been access. Like, can I get the access? Can I withstand the pressure? You know, there's been so many times where like I wasn't being paid to do the job and I had to wait on the access and it's not for the faint of heart. You know, you can spend, I could have spent a year and a half of my life doing this and I could have not gotten the access to Gypsy and it kind of would have been a wash. So the documentary, tell us what's the title and what it's about. Of course. The film's name is Mommy Dead and Dearest. It's on HBO. It came out May 15th and it's a little bit difficult to describe, but how I, I typically like to describe it is it's about a young woman who is wheelchair handicapped, who spends her life looking at Disney films and being on Facebook. She doesn't go to school. And she meets her Prince Charming online. And uh, something really terrible happens at her house. And it's a true crime murder mystery with a lot of weird sex in it. Yeah. I think even asterisks on the mystery. Like, someone gets murdered... And there are unanswered questions. But it's like, why did she get murdered? That's the mystery. There's no mystery about, like, who killed her and when and how. The mystery is largely of the human nature variety and and the uh, human psychology variety. So this story is pretty crazy on a, a bunch of levels. The part that was the most noticeable to me after seeing your first film, which was about the cannibal cop, was... You seem to be attracted to stories about the internet, where the internet plays a central role. 
And I always think about stories on the internet as being kind of bad stories to try to tell because it's like, and then what happened? Well, then I typed on the thing. It's like most of the important points in the story take place online. But when I was watching the story, I was struck by, oh my God, documentaries in 20 years are going to be totally different because there is a paper trail of everything that happens. And it's not someone remembering something. It's literal and it has photos and emojis and all these modern internet things. Tell me about the internet as a source for material for someone like you. I really have to credit Vice for that. That's a really weird, strange thing. I owe them a debt of gratitude for getting me interested in the subject matter that is dictating my life as we sit here and we have this conversation. I was in and out of different Vice channels. I didn't really have a spot, and they said, we're going to put you on Motherboard, which is the science and technology vertical. And it was helmed by this guy named Alex Pasternak, this really kind of out there loony guy who just sort of started talking to me about the stories he was interested in. And I just, I found something that I could be obsessed with. And the cool thing about science is that it really does well on the internet. My first ever produced video was called How to Survive in Space, and it was these little teeny microscopic organisms that can exist and thrive in space, and I went hunting for them in rural Virginia. That little video got 10 million hits. And suddenly, I was a person who got, I got to pitch my own ideas. I got to go after the weirdos that are, it's my particular interest. Because I was under budget, I made things super cheap, and uh, the internet reacted in this yeah. incredible way. And when I started talking to HBO, it's Sheila Nevins, the head of HBO, you know, she kind of was like, what are you interested in? And this was my niche. Like, whenever I'm talking to young reporters or young documentary filmmakers, I always sort of try to impress upon them, like, what are you interested in? And, like, what is happening in the media ecosystem that you can sort of grab hold on to? Uh, I just, I think we all need to be known for a beat. And mine is this, like, sex crimes murder science mystery. <laughs> like, I get emails from friends. It's like, saw this horrible sex crime and I thought of you. Yeah. Well, okay, there's a couple of things that interest me in there. One of them is, is that just intuitive for you that that's what you're interested in or is that in some ways a more complex calculation about what people like right now on the internet like especially when you're doing stuff like vice where it's shorter and it's like a two-week cycle instead of a year and a half cycle you kind of getting a feedback loop of like all right this is what's working this is what connects to a video audience online I was really, 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 I am and was really lucky that I grew up with my dad, David Carr, a reporter for the New York Times, and he was so amazingly patient and understanding and also like really creative with his kids, like me, my twin, and my little sister, Madeline, about what we were interested in, what we wanted to talk about, what we wanted to read. I was this obsessive freak about Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and he would sit me down and sort of be like, why are you interested in this? Um, so in terms of that, like, we, we would have discussions late into the night about stories that I was covering, and I got to have this this sort of ace in the deck yeah. when it came to developing stories because, you know, he would tell me when he thought something was not going to work and he was right. What, like, what kind of a perspective would he take in those, those conversations? He was obsessed with the internet. He was obsessed with Twitter. He uh, really wanted to think about what audiences wanted to watch, read, listen, hear about. Um, he has an amazing interview with Terry Gross called, um, 
diet of a media omnivore and it's about this sort of compulsive consuming of information yeah and so for when we had these discussions um it would be i would be going down to film with a guy that's 3d printing weapons and we would go over the questions and he said you know what you're missing is you're missing this big sort of societal push Mm. he gave me the title click print gun for that movie that would you know get 10 million views when he died it was really scary it was like how much of that was him how much of that was me and mommy dead and dearest he never you know I never even talked to him about it It was after he passed away I started working on it and so for people to be talking about it is really gratifying because it was such a scary moment I was like who am I outside of this person do I have the magic do I have the HBO magic do I have the story magic without you know dialing this my dad late into the night Hey, I'm going to pause things here for a quick moment to give you a word from our sponsor, HelloFresh. HelloFresh is a meal kit delivery service that makes cooking more fun so you can focus on the whole experience, not just the final plate. They send it to you and it's a box. They sent me some. I'm not a particularly confident cook, but it's got the right ingredients measured Each thing takes less than 30 minutes to make. So uh, I felt pretty confident and I'm really happy with the food I'm eating. It's um, they have two full time registered dietitians on staff who review each recipe to ensure it's nutritionally balanced. So I know it's healthy. I also know it's a great deal at less than ten dollars a meal. So if you're looking for delicious ingredients, you'll love to eat simple recipes. You'll live to cook. Get cooking with HelloFresh. I want you to go to HelloFresh.com. Put in code LONGFORM30 and you'll get $30 off your first week of deliveries and you'll be supporting the show. Again, HelloFresh.com, code LONGFORM30. Start getting HelloFresh today. Thank you, HelloFresh. Support for today's show also comes from Squarespace. I recommend Squarespace to people all the time. There's a lot of people out there who are sitting on ideas. A lot of those ideas are great. And one of the things that stands in the way of making them real is not having a website. So whether it's a portfolio that's showing off your work, a store that can sell stuff you make, a blog to start pushing your writing out, uh, Squarespace gives you everything you need, great templates, drag and drop, intuitive editing. Um, You will look like someone who knows how to make a website, even if you don't know any code. You can get a unique domain, so this doesn't look like something that's fly by night. It looks totally yours. It's easy for visitors to find it, and it really has a brand. Um, So if you're ready, you can get a free trial at squarespace.com, and you you can also put an offer code LONGFORM. You'll get 10% off your first purchase whenever you make it. Again, that's code LONGFORM at squarespace.com. Thank you again, Squarespace. Tell me about what it was like you're you're at HBO and you have a story that they've accepted and you're like I've got to actually make and finish a movie. So for Thought Crimes, it was a story about Gil Valley. Um, he was known as the Cannibal Cop. He was convicted and in prison for attempting to conspire to rape, kidnap, and eat women. It's in the um, New York Post Hall of Fame. Hall top of ten, Fame. Top ten New York Post headlines Hall of Fame for sure. Um, multiple multiple instances. Meet the wife. You know all <laughs> those things. Um, and I started visiting him in prison, and 
because HBO had expressed interest in the story. Now, HBO doesn't just give you movies. You do what's called a development deal first to show oh, that you can get the access. What, so, what does the development deal consist of? Like, what do you make for the development deal? Um, they give you a very small amount of money and you work on getting access to your source. Now, my source was in federal prison, had a journalist like my dad, like anybody else who I was interacting with at the time, had they told me, you're never getting a camera in federal prison, because you're not. Yeah. No one is gonna get a camera in federal prison. If it's state, you can get in. But I didn't know that, and I kept trying, and I kept visiting Gil in prison, and through this like shocking twist, he was, um, a judge overturned the conviction, and he was set free. And so I started talking to him, and, you know, he said, I can't be filmed right now. I just out of prison. He was so traumatized what had happened. And I hate that I'm bringing my dad so much up, but I, this is just the truth. I called my dad and he said, you're going to lose the story. You're going to lose the movie unless you get into that house tomorrow. And so I had to call this guy after he'd been in prison for 18 months and like push him to allow me to get in the house and I film with him so I've got it like and then yeah. I have to I go back to HBO and I, I have um, an 18 minute proof of concept saying I got the access it's well edited it has a point of view and so I, I turn to Andrew Rossi my producer as we're taking the cab there with the hard drive um, you know I've got like a blazer on and some like jeans and I said this is going to happen right what do you think the chances of this happening is and he said Forty percent, and I was like, "What do you mean, forty percent? I got the dude." And he's like, "There is no, there's no certainty in these things." I was down to my last five hundred dollars. I didn't understand that, like, it was not going to happen. Like, I had this sheer force of will that this film was going to happen. Um, it felt so shocking to me that they might not say yes. And then we got into the room. Sheila watches in the room, no cell phone. She doesn't take notes. She just kind of sits in this chair and she watches it and she responds to it. And they greenlit it in the meeting. So the whole thing they're watching is just your interview. It's just a cut of your interview. It's for in that moment. It was uh, with Dan Engber. He's a journalist at Slate. He's an yeah. incredible writer and thinker. Um, it was an interview with the parents. Yeah. Um, and it was Gil. And then it was like you know New York bureau. It was an 18 minute short version of the film I would ultimately make for them. It would never be just like, here's my interview. Yeah. Like, I got the stuff because like an HBO exec is not going to sit and just watch an interview. Right. You've got to show like what it's going to be I'm a like. director. Yeah. That I have a point of view. So actually, I want to discuss the idea of access because and you've basically said both of these stories hinged on access. Like it's a, a funded movie with access. It's like a nice try with no access. So when you're going in, to someone who's either facing criminal charges, already in prison, faced horrific abuse and trauma. How do you ask for that access? I will be very humble and I will say that I think that's my strong suit. I think it's sitting in a room and looking at somebody eye to eye and saying, this is what I think. I would give myself about a C plus when I did it with Gil Valley. Um, <laughs> I just I learned so much in that process. But basically, I went into meeting him thinking that he had been railroaded by the criminal justice system. And, you know, I, I kind of I didn't promise him the moon, but I said that this is going to be a piece that shows what has been done to you. It's hard for me to get interviews about it. He is he hated the movie mm. um, and which he thought it was really unfair. I thought it was really fair. Obviously, we're both biased. 
And he still is so angry. And he goes to Twitter and like talks about that, you know, I'm a con artist and that I'm like a fraudster and a huckster and like, you know, even worse sort of terms for me. Um, The fact is he got out of prison and he had serious boundary issues with me. And, um, you know, I saw that he had these moments of him being dangerous. Um, It's hard for me to talk about. I didn't include it in the movie. But I think that that's a really common thing that happens to young documentary filmmakers, not even young, any age. That's actually really ageist of me to say, you know, you, you, there's this intimacy that is developed between you and your source. You're going into their house. You're eating meals with them. They think of you as family. Yeah. Um, it is different than being a journalist. There's a lot of boundaries that have to take place when you're being a journalist uh, with a documentary filmmaker. It's about building intimacy and like that we're, you know, we're really having this back and forth. Um, so I, I hope I answered your question, but I, it was a really painful, weird. I don't. Thing. I don't mean to ask uh, ask you to t- uh, say anything about it that you're not comfortable saying. But like, at, at what point did you realize that like that relationship had like crossed some sort of line? I'm writing about it in the book, so I think I need to practice talking about it. Um, and I can't let somebody being angry with me like I, you know, he listens to everything that I do. Right. Um, and ultimately, he, you know, he'll listen to this and probably be angry. But he had a very weird thing with texting. Um, he would text me and my co-producer, Allison, are you alone? Um, what are you doing right now? Um, just these really weird felt like sort of fetish related questions that he like sort of. Um, you know, he kind of kept inquiring when I would be alone at night. And then in his house, it was just like there was only one instance of inappropriate touching. But I tried to be really clear with him. And I said, you know, we're not going to do this. Um, but he didn't he couldn't listen. And I was never allowed to be alone with him again. To not include that, like in the film, I think makes a lot of sense. But I also have this simultaneous feeling now that you're telling me, I'm like, wow, that's a really like interesting layer on the story of this film. Like, were you tempted to make that a part of the story? No, I was not going to um, because there's this moral ambiguity that permeates the film. Like, did he do it? Did he not do it? What is he sort of responsible for? I think a lot of our issues with him made its way into the edit without being outright. Yeah. It's only me sitting here two years later that I feel comfortable talking about it. I, uh, you know, it would have been, it, w- it's, it was just not the point of that movie. Yeah. Like, oh, the the cannibal cop has boundary issues. Like, woo, like <laughs> shocking, like alert the press. Like, Watch you out, know, ladies. <laughs> like, you know, I, I was this person that was coming and visiting him in prison. I yeah. like spoke with him. I like, we did letters back and forth. Like, it's very natural for transference to take place. Yeah. Um, you know, so like, to me, it wasn't shocking, but, um, you know, I think that I felt, you know, he has recently written a book and um, with a ghostwriter and like talked about that experience and he felt really lied to. And like I have this like I just want to like write back to him and say, like, are, are you kidding me? Are you you think I was unfair to you? I, w- I could not have been fairer. Um, HBO could not have been fairer to you. HBO had him in. Um, they talked to him. We showed him the movie prior to it airing. You know, he wouldn't have editorial insight. Um, I I just I, I think he is so wrong in his anger towards me. But, you know, that's that he can think what he wants. We live in America. Like, you yeah. know, he can have that opinion. 
So when you came back to do the second movie. It was about a woman. <laughs> you're like, no more dudes. <laughs> um, what made you think, oh, God, there's like a there's a whole movie here? I don't know how you look at that story and you yeah. don't think there's a whole movie here. I got to the scene very early. I got yeah. to it in August 2015. There was nobody writing about it. It was like a blog post on Gawker. It was in a it was yeah. in that catalog. Um, you know, Michelle Dean had just started reporting. I didn't know of her yet. That's the BuzzFeed reporter who yep. would write the incredible piece on it. Full you disclosure, know, former editor for Logfarm. Amazing. <laughs> um, you know, I think that I knew it would be an amazing doc. It pushed every sort of button that I have personally. Yeah. Um, I would say that I pitched it to a couple of people, um, not different networks or things like that. I was I was developing projects with HBO. And there was this sort of like, are you sure? Like, is there enough here? And I like, I just knew there was. The enough doesn't come down to so much of the story as what archive of material from that story would be available. So did you know, I mean, there's several troves in it. There's the archival footage of Dee Dee and Gypsy, which is pretty extensive. There's the modern day text message online paper trail, which is pretty extensive. And then you've got this long interview with Gypsy Blanchard because she Very long much, form. Yeah. Yeah. It's a long form interview. So one thing I thought was, wow, this documentary would be in a lot of trouble if it like was missing any one of those archives. You would never know. You never know. You would never know that I, that was missing because it wouldn't exist. I remember the thing that I felt most passionate about and most yeah. excited about, aside from the interview with Gypsy, was the archival, the home movies. And I was meeting with Mike Stanfield, who is Gypsy's lawyer, and it was all of the evidence on this table and they were like going through it and like it had to go somewhere and there was this like big baggie with VHS tapes in it and I just felt my mouth start to salivate and I had this really uncomfortable thought like who would know if I took it you know (laughs) obviously I didn't do that and I approached Rod and Christy who it's um, Rod is Gypsy's dad Christy is her stepmom who she now calls mom and I said documentary filmmaking is a long process you've put up with me Thank you so much. The one last thing I need, and this is so crucial, is I need the VHS tapes. And they were just like, you know, we want to go through things. And so it was another one of these moments where I could hear David Carr in my head. I could hear Andrew Rossi, my producer, in my head. He was like, get those tapes. Yeah. Get it. Um, And so uh, they were so lovely. They agreed. I agreed to digitize the tapes for him. I'd come back to Brooklyn to our office, and I have the recorder set up, and my hands are sort of shaking because, like, who knows what's on here? Like, this is a mystery. Like, nobody knew all these details besides us. And so I, like, put it in, and it won't play. And I'm just like, oh, my God. Like, I just almost have, like, a panic attack. And I look, and there's baby powder over everything, like, all of the tapes. Dee Dee was a morbidly obese woman, and she put baby powder all over herself all the time. And so it coated all the surfaces in the house. And I just was so miserable. And Allison, co-producer, went to a guy named Ranko to have the baby powder removed, hand, like, from the tapes. And then it worked. That sounds really expensive. Okay, so you get these archivals. When you started looking at the period of the story that takes place after Gypsy has reached adolescence and is basically becoming a sexual being, albeit one leading a totally cloistered life, there's this whole 
fantasy world that kind of takes place online. How did you go about telling that story? Really carefully. Gypsy is an abuse victim. She's yeah. also somebody who conspired to have her mother murdered. But she's also a adolescent woman who was lied to about her age for many years. And she, like, the one thing that sort of brought her out of being a child was her sexuality. And so for me, I knew that I wanted it to be in the film. It was just about how we go about it. And ultimately, we thought that it would make sense for, you know, us to show that Nick had multiple personalities and then that Gypsy had these alternate sexual personalities. And like, that's one of the ways we got into it. Is that from the court record? Like where are like the photographs and stuff like that from? That is from this like giant crazy batch of evidence. Um, and you know, there was a lot on there to sift through and you had to be really careful about like what you show and what you don't show. And I think that it's so weird because you see her as this little girl with like a bow in her hair next yep. to Ronald McDonald. And then like suddenly there's this sharp left and you're like seeing Disney BDSM and like it was a risk. A lot yeah. of people could have been like, hey, like this is tasteless and gross. And like, yeah. how could you do this? Yeah. Uh, so I was very happy when nobody said the word tasteless. I mean, I'm sure someone has said it. I just haven't heard it. Are you able in that sort of a situation? I'm sorry for being so naive, but I have like very little idea of like what you can get access to and something like this. Like, do you have all of her emails from that period? Something I thought was really interesting is I have her Google searches on the days after her mom was murdered. It's about her Googling Beauty and the Beast, BDSM, a certain sex toy that she was looking for. Um, then she put, like, missing Ozarks woman. Like, she knew that she was missing, and she was waiting to see when the news happened, when yeah. it broke. So she would type it in over and over and over again. Like, that was really alarming because then, you know, the next day she's hauled into the sheriff's office, and she's like, oh, my mom is dead, and, like, it doesn't make any sense. She's, like, play acting. So it's it's very strange to have these, like, alternate gypsies. I was talking uh, on the show a few weeks ago with Nick Bilton, who just yeah. wrote a book about the Dread Pirate Roberts, Silk Road guy. And one of the most fascinating things to me is that you could basically say any day from the minute that he started Silk Road to the minute he was caught, what he was doing. Like, the logs are complete. You could pinpoint a specific afternoon and know where he was. What he was wearing, what he was eating. What like, he I did online. To what, yep. Every single message he said. What, the server updates that he like issued on a specific day. You could probably figure all that stuff out. When you have that much data, how do you start boiling this down to what's important? How do you start like turning all the raw material into the movie? Oh, God. I had a document that I believe was 118,000 pages. That was all of her Facebook history. So I would just get the biggest cup of coffee that you've ever seen and just start like working my way through. And then I would have a Google Doc saying like, these are the valuable grabs from this. You know, it's like gumshoe, like storyteller, like what is going to be specific to the story that we want to tell? But like, I need to say this. It's about picking the right person to edit it. Yeah. Like there have been so many things where I'm like, oh, this has to be included. This has to be included. And Andrew Kaufman like just sees through things. And he's like, nope, this is what is going to be. I think Andrew like cut that movie in a month and a half. That is one of the craziest things I've ever heard. When you're taking a story like that where the primary action of the story has already happened, 
you can kind of jump in wherever you want and you can kind of tell whatever story you want. It's not unclear who committed the murder or when most of the lingering questions are like, how should we think about this person, Gypsy Blanchard, who's both a murderer and a victim of some of the most horrific abuse. So when you have a good editor, like, do you sit down and discuss what story you want to tell? Or are you asking him to look at the footage and figure that out for himself? I'm curious what kind of high-level conversations you have when you're starting to put together a movie like this. It really depends on the project. Like, I'm working on a Netflix show, and I had to do a paper cut. And that means, like, I am building out, like, this is how I want the movie to go, like, yeah. for the editor. And then it's this discussion. With Andrew Kaufman, you know, he's he's even younger than me. He's, like, this sort of savant, like we have a discussion about like what I think the film is. And I remember I storyboarded it. I did all these notes. I don't think he ever even looked at any of that. Like, you know, he's like, that's just kind of like for me to do. That is very, very atypical. Um, So I think anybody who's like learning more about documentary filmmaking, like typically like the director will build a paper cut and then you'll have a discussion with the editor. You'll even sit with each other. Andrew Kaufman and I don't sit together. He, some of the best days of my life has been when he's like, hey, do you want to like come over and look at this? Like maybe he doesn't talk like that, but it is an unusual dynamic that we have, um, but one that I am not touching because it's been working very well. When you, once you got the interview with Gypsy Blanchard, which is like the kind of the most indelible images in the movie, I think, are her sitting in this, I think it's a, it's a courtroom, right, where you interviewed her. Do you have any options there or do you have to go for the courtroom? That was incredible that we were able to film in a courtroom. It was um, it like it was kind of like there was it, the whole thing was kind of. She surprising. was wearing handcuffs she's the wearing whole time. Ha- like she's she's yeah, it's like not a setup I've ever seen before. I don't think. I tried to film her in prison. The sheriff did not even respond to my letter. That is another way that this film could not be made. She had agreed to do the interview. Her attorney Mike Stanfield had signed off on it. And still, I wasn't, I didn't know. She's yeah. in the custody of the state. You don't know if you're going to be able to film. Um, so it was the judge that actually allowed us to film in his courtroom that is shocking, that is unprecedented. Um, it was Why, a like, wild couple so of they hours. Just said, it was like three hours. So they just said, like, she's got the handcuffs on? Like, yeah, she can't take, I, I had to, her hair was not looking great. And so I was trying to pin her hair back and I had a bobby pin and I had to ask the bailiff if I could touch her. And he was like, please make it really quickly. Because, like, a bobby pin can be used in prison. Yeah. So you have to be really careful. And, like, the second the interview is over, like, get the bobby pin out of her hair. It was totally surreal. So you have three hours with her. This person that you've poured better part of a year of your life into her, you know, sort of understanding her life. You've seen almost every part of her life unfold on video and in emails and text messages. What's your strategy on those three hours? My first question that I asked her was, can you describe your mom to me? That is a bold first question. Um, That's the first question you see in our movie. It was, I think I had about nine pages of questions for her. I couldn't sleep the night before. I wanted to start off in a way that was like, this is what we're going to talk about. But I, I also had prepped her on, like, we're going to talk about the murder. Um, this is an important part of the film. And I would ask that you speak honestly. Yeah. It was uh, extremely, extremely painful for her. But it was almost like this really weird, like, she kind of smiled a lot during the interview. Like, yeah. she made sort of jokes. And I realized, like, it was this somewhat therapeutic 
thing, like being able to talk because her whole life she'd been silenced. And so it was like, here was this woman in front of her, like asking her these things. She's just been waiting for somebody to ask her. Were you thinking primarily about, I need to get what I need to get for this movie? No. And, and also like, how is this person going to come across in this movie? Like her hair and the setting and that stuff versus getting information that you did not previously have from her. Was it, was anything that you like learned in that interview not previously known about the case? So much. There was so much in that interview that court records can't tell me. I, you know, you get a very sort of intense picture of what she thought the night of her mom being murdered felt like. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's so different hearing from the perpetrator and victim of the case. I remember I had this really weird reaction when she started crying. When we talked about her mom being murdered, she had to be naked in the bathroom, crouched. Um, She could hear her mom being murdered. And she started to cry. And I was like, this is the exact moment in the movie where the girl cries. Yeah. Does she know to do that? Is she playing me? That was an issue that does come up in the documentary, which was how can someone who's been exposed to such a master manipulator for her entire life not in some ways have that inside her? How did you navigate issues like that? I was at HBO, and we we showed the film to uh, friends and family, and somebody asked Rod, her dad, like, do you trust Gypsy? Because ultimately, it doesn't matter if I trust her. I'm just this random person. And he had this incredible response. He said, I will trust her until she gives me a reason not to. You know, he says it's hard, and I have always really admired him for being like, listen, like, yeah, she could have aspects of her mom, but, like, she needs someone. And, like, Gypsy is, like, very lovable. And, like, you know, I think that there's just, there is a lot of tension there, and there's not this, like, blind faith in her, but it's like, hey, like, I'm going to listen, and I'm going to be there for her. And that's sort of, like, I tried to sense how the family was sort of figuring it out and, like, tried to sort of follow in, in step. That's an interesting idea. The secondary question that looms behind the entire documentary is how are you supposed to think as an audience member about this person? What what have their responses been like? I was nervous that people would really think of her as dangerous. I think in the film we say that she's potentially dangerous. I do not fear for my safety at all around her. I like when I see her name popping up on my phone. Um, I think the reactions have been overwhelmingly positive. They are identifying her as somebody that went through a lot of abuse and had a, a really dark series of years. And like this was sort of inevitable. People are hashtagging like Team Gypsy. And like, you know, I think that I have been very startled and very humbled by the response that people really like care about this girl in the way that I sort of do. And the film is not easy on her. Like that would have been such an easy movie to make. Like, you know, this is what happened. You know, it was all Nick. He was the one that actually killed. I'm talking about Gypsy's uh, boyfriend. He was the one that actually killed her. But when you look at the evidence, when you hold it in your hands, you see that she was the initiator of this murder. And so having to figure that out while still having this relationship with her uh, was difficult. There's been kind of a true crime boom during the year that you, you've been doing this. Uh, some of it's documentaries, Netflix series, podcasts. And there's also been like a backlash boom to go with the true crime boom. And I think if you take all of the backlash, which is 
all very different and, you know, has its own specific details. A lot of it seems to be how dare you make entertainment out of something that's tragic. Um, I'm wondering how you think about that as someone who's like serially pitching these projects. I find that I watch a lot of true crime and I think that it's really difficult to navigate the taste line when you're making television. People are dead. This isn't a joke. It isn't funny. But like you can't watch a two hour long or a series and just be totally crushed the whole time. You know, I think that it's getting the right people in terms of a doc or, you know, people on your podcast to like tell the story. And I just so when people say that there's been a true crime sort of renaissance, I don't really agree with that. I think that's true crime has always been a thing. People are always been obsessed with it. The Internet is just like kind of pushing it into the public arena in a way that is so much more visible. It's just loud. There are hashtags. There's people obsessively sort of talking about it. But like when you look at the cultural tradition of HBO, like Paradise Lost, like sure. Joe Berlinger and uh, Bruce Sinoski and that was an incredible series of films about like what took place in those hills. So yeah, we're in a moment. Yeah, I'm totally benefiting from that moment. I don't have fear that it'll be over. I think it's life and death. I think people will always, especially women, will always be into it. I think you're absolutely right. If you look at like, what are the biggest magazine stories ever? What are the biggest documentaries ever? You know that true crime's gonna be like a quarter of them, and you know that sex crime's gonna be like top among there. I mean, we see this like in like long form every year we do our like top 10 most clicked and it's like murder, murder, sex, sex, murder, sex, murder, 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 you, you sex. You found my secret success. God damn it. And and it gives you a bit of an advantage in that it's like, I think a lot of people, when people want to make a documentary, it's like, oh, I, this singer is just incredible. It's or like, it's what are about the stakes the to the story? Like, I can't. Like, yeah. it has to be watchable. It like, comes with these massive built-in stakes. Yeah. What's hard about making a true crime documentary? A lot of people can't do it because you're waiting around for access. And it could be years before you get the access. You do not have agency to make it happen on your timeline. It's also you live under this cloud of yep. sadness. It's very, very real. Like as I was looking through that 118,000 page document, like – you know, there's just certain things you can't unsee. Like, yeah. you know, I mean, it's just a lot of people would just be like, I can't do that for a year and a half. I don't want to. I know that, I, you know, I've worked with uh, Allison on these last two films and we're working on another one. And I asked her to look into the salt mom. who was this young woman who poisoned her child to death using salt. And she turned to me and this is the only time she's ever done this with me. She said, I can't do this today. <laughs> I was like. A boundary. I can listen to it. I hear you. Like, you know, there's some days where I can't do it either. In most of the stories that you've told about the turning points for these projects, it's generally involved a situation where you had to go get something and you just like did it. You figure it out. I'm wondering like where, what you attribute that skill to. Is that something that comes to you naturally or is that a skill that you've developed? I think it is how I was raised and, you know, I did not understand that as a woman, like people would be telling me to be quiet. Like I was raised in this amazing like open environment where like I was told on almost a daily basis that I was smart. And I think like a lot of positive 
reinforcement is just so good. And so, like, that was part of the issue with the cannibal cop. I never even thought that it might not happen. Like, that's a little delusional. Like, you know, I just think that's a little delusional um, now. And so um, I have a, like, a framed quote next to my bed. My dad would write me these crazy, beautiful emails. And, you know, I'll paraphrase it because I don't have it in front of me. But it's like, you know, when you finish your project, a movie or a book or anything – it's about what happens next. You'll always hunger for more. Uh, it's a blessing that lives inside a curse. And so, like, that's the way that he lived his life, continually striving for more. So when it comes to, like, going up to the people or getting the story or asking HBO to fund another movie or, you know, writing a book, it's like, I'll try. I'll do it. And there have been many, many times in my life where I failed and I felt the crushing sort of defeat. We're just not here talking about it. <laughs> right. Um, you know, Your father was someone who had like a really deep interest in like a wide swath of the world. And that's something I like take from your work also that like you probably lurk in some weird corners of the internet or at least like wondering what's happening in those. Like, are you able to like lead a normal life when you're deep in one of these stories or do you go in a hole? I think if you were to ask my boyfriend, he would say no. (laughs) I grind my teeth. And yeah. to the point of they bleed in the morning, like I wake up with blood in my mouth. Yeah. And when there was a Hollywood Reporter piece that announced that this film had been, um, you know, HBO acquired it. And he wrote a status. He said, you know, come check out what my, my girlfriend has been like grinding her teeth about for the last two years. You know, I thought that was so funny. I don't I don't think I'm a particularly easy person to live with. I think that in order to do things like this, you become obsessive. Yeah. And, like, you know, it's hard for me to care about, like, cleaning the house and doing things like that. It's an issue in my life because I'm like, I have to go to the prison. I have to figure this out. I'm going to be going and shooting this trial. Like, I think that it's hard for other people to deal with. One of the things I noticed um, after your father passed was that there was, like, how many people had felt, like, mentored by him and it, like how many people had like sent him their writing and he responded to is it strange thinking about like your parental figure interacting with like lots of young people no that was always a part of my life um yeah. he was an editor at washington city paper and you know he had these young people over like amanda ripley Tanahasi coates brett anderson eric wemple they were a part of our lives like they would be over for frisbee and barbecue and like You know, I, at a very early age, was able to talk to adults uh, in a way that, you know, an adult would speak to an adult. Um, I know that Lena has talked about being mentored by him. I mean, mainly being friends rather than mentored by him. It's always a a fine line. I mean, they're both unusual. Yeah, and I, like, I get confused about it because that dude slept four hours a night. He had a, a, a column. He was always working. And yet he had all of these sort of like mentees and he also had time for me and my sisters. And like ultimately, like he made a lot of time for his wife, um, my stepmom, Jill, like they were really, really together. I just don't. It feels like there were a couple of him like wandering around. Like it just it always feels really weird to me to figure out like how full his life was and how like professionally accomplished he was. But ultimately, like, I think that was a part of, like, why he died so young. Like, he, I mean, of course he smoked cigarettes and he was not a healthy dude and he had a former incredible, crazy drug addiction. He just was always at 11, if not 11, 24. Like, it was, a like, I think a pretty shocking way to live. When you're doing one of these movies, are you at 11? Yes. <laughs> 
when you get a budget for this, do you pay yourself a salary? Are you like working against the like, <laughs> if I go overtime, I'm not getting paid for it? Uh, so you get a flat fee per project and the quicker you can finish it, the yeah. more money you make. And, you know, I think that no one will ever get rich from doing this. Yeah. Um, I was really lucky to be approached by Netflix um, to work on a series, like, you know, while I was waiting for this trial to happen. So, like, you kind of always have to be hustling. And, like, you know, I obviously would love to work at HBO, but, like, that's not, like, how documentary works anymore. Like, you're the person with the idea. You come in. You say, yeah. I, I want to sell you this idea. I have never been really comfortable with freelance, but, like, that is what documentary filmmakers, I would not be making these films if I was in-house, you know, at another media company. So you're doing a new, another one now, you're going to court this week. Can you talk about it at no. all? No. No? Nothing? I can't talk about it. I can't talk about the Netflix show. I can talk about the book I'm writing. What's the book you're writing? I'm writing a book for Random House about the relationship with my dad and the idea that I had Basically, he wrote me 1,900 emails, and he died really, really suddenly. Um, he was interviewing Laura Poitras, the incredible filmmaker, and Snowden by way of Skype, and Glenn Greenwald. Um, I think I was, was there. At, you were there. Yeah, I was there too. I was late, and he was so because I always have to sit in the front, and he wants to make eye contact. Uh, I was late. It was a total nightmare, and you know, I went backstage, and he introduced me to Glenn Greenwald. And uh, Glenn was like, your dad won't stop talking about you. He's your biggest fan. And I said, I'm his biggest fan. And it was like this lovely moment that I like was like, hey, let's go get dumplings. And he's like, no, I don't feel good. Um, and like that was the last anybody ever talked to him. And so it was this like total surreal, shocking, uncomfortable thing. And I was basically like I couldn't breathe. I couldn't. I couldn't figure anything out for months after that. And so I would just find myself like in this fog with, you know, the stereotypical curtains drawn, like looking at these emails from him. And I'm going to start to cry, like thinking about it. But it's just. Um, and this is the same period you were making this movie. No. no. Like, so I he died in February. I didn't start till August. It's not that long. Really? <laughs> it's like less than six months. This isn't the same time period. It was several months removed from those events. I mean. I think, like, so basically one of the only ways that I got out of grief was through working. Yeah. Um, I think that's really common for people. And I just started looking at his emails and realizing how many sort of unanswered questions and how, like, just these, like, amazing sort of things. And so I, I remember on the year anniversary of his death, I pitched it to New Yorker Online and they were like, no, we don't, you know, you know, we don't really have a need for this. And uh, then so I just self-published it on Medium and it was called Still Rendering. And like people really connected with New Yorker it. Yorker Online didn't take that. It was great. <laughs> I'm glad that you're airing them out of the show over it. <laughs> uh, you know, I have to do one sort of call out. Yeah. Um, and then Random House contacted me and said, would you consider writing a book about this? Yeah. And I am not a writer by trade, and, like, this is what you deal with. Like, you're talking to these incredible writers. And I had such fear and trepidation as, like, this is something that he did. He literally wrote a memoir. And so I wrote 40 pages to see how it felt. And they said, you can do this. A lot of your success or a lot of these projects seem to come like, to you when you, like, put stuff out there and the universe sort of puts something back to you. I mean, it's like... I know there's people who want to make documentaries out there who are like, I've got a great idea, but it's like, 
put up some like internet videos you know if you want to like write a book like i don't know write a medium post like see if someone's interested and that's the cool part about living in this time period like you know i could have you know written it down in a notebook 10 years ago um you know if we were living in different times like the fact that i can put it on medium and someone like ariana huffington sees it like yeah that's crazy it's also because he was in his own right a media icon. It's not just me writing about somebody that like nobody knew about. It's like people felt really close and really connected to him because of the book, because of the documentary, because of his incredible writing at the Times. You know, like I think he's more of the secret sauce than I am. Is that something you think about while you're working on, you know, this project or working on a book? Are you thinking about what your dad would have said about it? I'm scared. I'm horrified. I do not have a lot of fear when it comes to making documentaries. I think I'm good at it. And, like, that's not to seem like an asshole. Like, it just, I feel like it's what I was put on this earth to do. Like, I feel totally in love with it as a profession. Um, I think writing is really getting outside of my comfort zone. And it's really talking about sort of the embarrassing things that happen. Like, one of the parts of the book, I was fired. And I, um, that to me was like, I know that a lot of people are fired, but it was a hidden shame of mine that my dad wrote, like did this amazing, he counseled me sort of through it. And so I, I knew that it should be a part of this and like, nobody cares besides me. I don't want anybody knowing about that. I don't like, I was like, have a hard time sending it to the editor. You know what I mean? Like, it's so, I don't, I want people to think of me as like this, like tough badass woman who's a documentary filmmaker not like this person that like really fucked up early in my career but I think that like when I said yes to the book I said yes to being honest and like my dad's book The Night of the Gun is so scary like it is a portrait of addiction where he you know he physically assaulted people and like I just like I can't even begin to know what kind of honesty and strength like it is writing about that and being honest about that so I just try to like right size myself and I say no one cares about you being fired this is a good section of the book just write it you brought up something that I had not thought of at all but uh the person at the center of this documentary is someone who did some things that are clearly horrible like killing someone and you just described your father as someone who had like been an addict and assaulted people is that like a fascination with you as like a personality type or how do you think about people who have those kind of dual qualities I'm genuinely curious uh, and drawn to darkness I think that we are not our best or worst action and so I think I personally feel that I can see the gray in things where people think, oh, it's this guy that wanted to attack and hurt women. He was a police officer. Throw that guy away. I don't believe in that. Oh, there's this girl who had her mom murdered and she was supposedly sick and she took advantage of people. I don't believe in that. I believe that we are a cause of like all of these series of moments. And I think that as a filmmaker, I want to find out those people who have been thrown away, who have been vilified, and like give them a fair shot. Not let them walk all over me, like the journalist in me would never allow for that, but to give them a fair and honest shake. I think it's, it's, it's really important to search for the gray. Well, um, thank you very much for coming in. I really thank appreciate you. it. Um, how can people who want to see Mommy, Dead, and Dearest uh, find it? Uh, they can find it on HBO, HBO Go, HBO, HBO Now. Now. Yeah, all of the b- varieties. All the of HBOs. HBO um, and it's just, just get HBO. Yeah, yeah. Like borrow somebody's password or you get know, your so, own password. You know someone who has cable? Let's get it off. Right. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much. Thank you. 
And that was the Long Form Podcast. Thanks very much to Aaron Lee Carr. Thank you to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to Janelle Pfeiffer, who edited this episode. Our intern is Courtney Harrell. Our sponsors this week were MailChimp, uh, Kindle, Squarespace, Viacom, and HelloFresh. If you want to get in touch, you can always email us, editors at longform.org. We'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.